0: Uh, so today we're going to continue on in our series in Acts. We've been looking at Acts, uh, Catherine, you're my hero. We've been looking at Acts now, um, for quite a while, and we've been slowly taking it chapter by chapter, um, and we are now in Acts chapter 17, and what we've seen so far is we've seen the church activated, uh, to do ministry, and I'm really excited by what Paul, um, does in this chapter, what, what Luke reports that Paul does in this chapter, because I think it has a really powerful message for us today. But now that I have my message, thanks, Catherine, let me collect myself and uh, let's open up with some prayer. Uh, Father, I just thank you uh, for this morning, uh, for this opportunity that we have to come together uh, as Christians, um, as people who are seeking the truth, to worship you, to acknowledge you, to grow in our faith, to be challenged. Uh, Lord, may the words that I speak this morning, may uh, they fall on deaf ears if they're not from you. Uh, Lord, may the words that do come from you, may they just be amplified in our hearts and and resonate with us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay, I was going to bring a bobblehead in, but I I think that might start becoming predictable with me. I have bobbleheads of theologians, and one of them is Martin Luther. You guys know who Martin Luther is? I'm not talking about Martin Luther King. Oh, I'm seeing students here. Hi. Do you guys like bobbleheads? No. No. Okay, how about I send you off to Sunday school? You might like that better. I think bobbleheads are cool. You guys are missing out. No fun. We have an amazing children's ministry that they're going to. Did a teacher follow them? (laughs) Hopefully a teacher followed them. I believe a teacher followed them. She's already there. Whew, okay. Okay, let's pray again. (laughs) Okay, so I have a bobblehead of theologians. I I have a couple. And one of them is Martin Luther. You guys know who Martin Luther is? Okay, so Martin Luther, he's a 16th century monk, uh, German. Uh, He's wrestling with questions that seem to have no answer. His heart was burning with a desire to know and understand God. He was trapped with the stringent rules of religion and a church that propagated false doctrines. Now, deep within the soul of Martin Luther, he knew that something had to change. With each step, the unease stirred within him, until one day, driven by this unyielding determination, he reached a pivotal moment in his life. And so, armed with the strength of his faith and a resolve that defied the status quo of the time, Luther stood before the imposing doors of Wittenberg's Castle Church. And these doors were just the door into a, a church. These doors served as a public bulletin board. This is where scholars and theologians could engage in scholarly discussions and debates. It was the Twitter of the 16th century. And so these statements would uh, be uh, nailed to the door, not tweeted, that was a significant difference. And so that hammer that Luther would raise would become a symbol of defiance against the idols that had infiltrated the Catholic Church. What were these idols? Power, authority, particularly the authority of the Pope, and the thing that a lot of us idolize, money. And so Luther had 95 different statements that he posted to challenge these idols. And in that split second, with a mighty swing, he struck a resounding blow on human history. As the nail pierced the door, Luther's act became more than just a physical gesture. Each strike of the hammer symbolized a challenge thrown at the idols of his time. The false beliefs that had ensnared hearts and minds, the false beliefs that had entangled his own faith. This was a call to cast aside anything that hindered true communion with God. It was a daring step towards renewal. So just as a stone thrown into a calm lake creates ripples that spread far and wide, Luther's courageous act shattered the walls of complacency and ignited a movement that echoed throughout history. This was a call for change, a call to revive the true spirit of faith. And like a blazing fire, it sparked newfound passion in people's hearts and transformed lives. Where hundreds of years later, we Call our tradition in the Christian church, larger Christian church, we are Protestants because of the Protestant Reformation that Martin Luther started right here at these doors. Luther's story is not merely a tale of a courageous monk in a distant era, it's a narrative that reverberates through the ages. It challenges us to confront the idols that ensnare us today. So, today we're going to examine Acts 17 where the Apostle Paul stands amid a city overflowing with idols, proclaiming a message of truth and hope to a seeking crowd. Paul's words remind us that we too live in a world brimming with distractions and desires that compete for our attention and devotion, right? Are you guys busy? Do you have things that distract you from the Lord? Is it just me? In this moment, this morning, we're going to be invited to follow the footsteps of Martin Luther, who followed in the footsteps of Paul, to boldly confront the idols that have taken root in our hearts, both individually but also collectively. It is through this act of courageous confrontation that we create space for the transformative power of God's love and grace. So as we delve into the sermon, let's answer the call to examine our own lives, identify the idols that hinder our relationship with God, and embark on the spiritual revival that all of us long for. And this is a revival that we long for not just for ourselves, but for the world. Here's the message of this morning in a sentence. You have to deal with idols to spark a revival. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we stand on the brink of this exploration, we ask for your guidance. Open our hearts and minds as we seek to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. Help us, Lord, to confront the idols in our lives, making space for your transforming love and grace. And as we seek you in your word, may we draw closer to you. May we seek to live in obedience. May we experience the personal and global revival that we yearn for. In Jesus' name, amen. So when Paul arrives at Athens, it's not just the heart of Greece. Like when we think of Greece, we often think of Athens, right? This is the epicenter of culture, philosophy, and intellect. Paul has been touring the Mediterranean with the gospel, spreading the message of Jesus, and now he finds himself alone in Athens. He's awaiting for his companions, Silas and Timothy. And as he wanders through the city, he's struck by the sheer number of idols and altars dotting the landscape. Athens is a city deeply entrenched in polytheism. It's people seeking divine connection through a pantheon of gods and really weird and corrupt worship practices. And this city is going to become the stage for one of the most powerful speeches in the New Testament. Paul stands on Mars Hill, which is a place we're known for intellectual discourse, just like the Wittenberg Doors in Germany. And he speaks to the Athenians there, and he uses their cultural context. He uses their idols to introduce the message of Jesus. Kind of cool. What makes this passage really intriguing is that it showcases Paul's skill in communicating, his ability to connect with a diverse audience and his unwavering courage to share the gospel amidst potential hostility. If you read all of Acts 17, you'll notice that the previous two cities that Paul was journeying to, he approached the gospel message in a very different way than he does here. Paul adapts his style to fit who he's talking to. Now, Paul is no stranger to hostility, right? The previous two churches or the previous two communities that he was preaching in, when he preached in Thessalonica... Uh, a mob raised up. And Paul had actually already left. And when this mob couldn't find Paul, they went and they attacked the home of Paul's friend, Jason. And this is what they shouted. And I, I love this line. It says, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men who have turned the world upside down. That's an incredible endorsement of Paul's ministry, right? Like, Lord, may we be people who turn the world upside down with the gospel. May people recognize that when we come in with the gospel and we live our Christian life, our Christian convictions, when we speak the truth in love, the world gets turned upside down. Or is it actually set right side up? These people are so irritated with Paul that they didn't just settle for him leaving their town, they pursued him to the next town that he was in. He went to the Bereans, and they drove him out of that town too. Now, the brothers who were in Berea, they decided that it would be best for Paul to move on. That's why Paul is in Athens. But Paul leaves behind Silas and Timothy, which is why Paul is in Athens alone. Silas and Timothy are on their way. So let's look at Acts 17, verse 16. It says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So as Paul gazed at the vast number of idols at altars in Athens, he felt a sense of distress. The city, deeply entrenched in polytheism, served as a stark reminder of a spiritual hunger. These idols aren't just gross and disgusting. Uh, They're actually an indicator to Paul of the heart of the city, the heart of what's going on. There was a spiritual hunger that these idols represented. And their misplaced devotion was permeating the culture. So this distress that Paul has experienced in Athens, it compels Paul, as it should compel us, to ask a critical question. What idols do we encounter? What idols do we encounter today in our cities? Whether it's the Silicon Valley workplace our homes, our schools. We're surrounded by modern-day idols. And one of the things that we're going to see this morning is that we need to develop the heart for community that Paul had for Athens. So the first thing that we need to do as we're developing the heart for Athens, or the heart for our community as Paul developed his heart for Athens, is we need to discern the desperation of these people. So just as Paul discerned the longing for truth in Athens, we need to open our eyes and hearts to the needs of those around us. It's really easy for us to overlook the struggles and the deep-seated questions that people carry every day with them. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to be attentive and compassionate. Not to have disdain for people who are seeking, but compassion. I implore you to extend that compassion to those whose longing isn't as obvious as your own. Your colleague at work may be dealing with stress. They might be dealing with burnout, a lack of work-life balance. And what they're longing for is the inner peace and fulfillment that we find in Jesus. Your neighbor may be experiencing conflict in their relationship, and they might find themselves in need of the reconciliation that we find in Jesus. It might be a student in your life who's struggling with academic pressure and is in need of guidance for finding their true purpose. Maybe there's an elderly person in your life who's feeling isolated and in need of companionship and spiritual support. In our fast-paced and self-absorbed world, many individuals yearn for something more meaningful. They long for answers to life's deepest questions A sense of purpose and fulfillment that transcends the fleeting pursuits of the world. And Like the Athenians, they often seek these things in the wrong places, just like we do. They build altars and idols. But Paul, discerning the desperation that exists in the community, he cultivates genuine concern for their spiritual well-being. Just like we need to cultivate genuine concern for the spiritual well-being of those around us. We need to discern the desperation and meet it not with complacency or indifference or disdain, but rather with empathetic care. We need to be ready to share the hope of Jesus. And after we've discerned the desperation, we need to unmask the idols. Paul's distress upon witnessing the idols in Athens serves as a powerful reminder for us, too, in identifying the modern-day idols that dominate our lives in our community. Our society, much like Athens, is inundated with various idols that captivate our hearts and minds so consider materialism right where some individuals find their identity their security in their possessions these individuals may not necessarily be hoarders they could actually be minimalist but the few things they have are so important to them and their security that if they were to go away their whole identity their whole sense of self would quake Similarly, we may encounter ambitious students or career-driven individuals who prioritize recognition and personal achievement above all else. Their relentless pursuit of success can become an idol that consumes their thoughts and actions. An idol I think a lot of us struggle with lives in our, our pockets. We have to be aware of the allure of entertainment and distraction. There are those of us who become enthralled with various forms of media, constantly seeking amusement. This is me. Which hinders their ability to fully engage with God and others. How many of us, the first thing we pick up in the morning is our phone, and the first place we go to is a social media website? How many of us can genuinely say that the first thing we do is pick up our phone or or pick up our Bible and read Scripture and connect with God? Maybe it's not media that we're picking up. Maybe we're worried about what we missed because we have this sense that we're so important that somebody might have messaged us in the middle of the night that we have to respond to first thing in the morning. When we come face-to-face with idols in our own lives, we're called to unmask them, to expose the empty promises and reveal the inability to bring true satisfaction and fulfillment. Moreover, this recognition of idols needs to extend beyond just ourselves. We have a responsibility to unmask these idols in the lives of others as well. By identifying the idols in our own lives, we gain a greater understanding of the struggles and the challenges faced by those in our community. This discernment allows us to cultivate a heart of genuine concern, recognizing that true contentment and purpose can only be found in a genuine relationship with God. So just as Paul, a great man of faith, understood the danger that idols posed in his own life, he also recognized the peril that these idols presented to the Athenians. So let us also be aware of the danger that these idols pose for all of us. We need to build bridges of hope. So Paul's approach to the Athenians offers a valuable lesson for us in engaging with our community. Just as he used their cultural context and experiences to introduce the message of Jesus, we too are called to build bridges of hope. We have to meet people where they are. We have to speak to their unique needs and aspirations in order to effectively share the transformative power of the gospel. There was a movement in the church decades ago uh, that we're still being impacted by called the Seeker Sensitive Movement. There's this idea that people are seeking out God and so if we adapt our church services to appeal to pre-believers, non-believers, that they might come in. That's an attractional ministry model. If we build it, they will come. The truth is, we were sent. We are people sent, not people sent to attract. Because actually what we know is that Jesus and the people who follow Jesus are going to face persecution. We are naturally repellent. So we have to go out and share the love of God intentionally. We have to build bridges of hope to bring people in to our faith community. We need to build relationships based on trust and respect. We can create spaces for meaningful conversations and opportunities to share the hope and freedom found in Christ when we go out. So as we strive to discern the desperation, as we strive to unmask the idols that grip our lives and our communities, we're led to consider Paul's approach. How did he engage the Athenians in conversation? So that's what we're going to continue as we explore Acts 17, So this passage highlights Paul's intentional effort to engage in conversation about Jesus and the resurrection. Even with a culture that was unfamiliar with these concepts, Paul was still going to approach it. And this serves as a powerful reminder of the importance for Christians today to actively engage in dialogue about our faith with the secular cultures that we find ourselves in. So let's read Acts 17, 17 through 21. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. This is Paul's model. He usually goes to the synagogues. And it says, it continues, and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign uh, divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you are bringing some strange things in our ears. We wish to know, that, uh, to know therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So this was a gathering place. The gathering place, Paul has the opportunity to, to speak towards this something new that he's bringing them. And so just as the Apostle Paul fearlessly engaged in deep conversations about faith, we too are, passionately, uh, are called to passionately participate in dialogue. The Apostle Peter encourages us to be ready to explain the hope that we have. We must not remain silent, but we have to actively share our beliefs in the transformative power of the good news of Jesus. We need to be passionate about gospel-centered conversations with pre-believers. We're called to build bridges of understanding, to dispel misconceptions of the faith, and shine the light of Jesus in every interaction with the world we have. Our world is divided and skeptical, and we've been entrusted with the task of fostering open and respectful conversations. In the marketplace, Paul encounters philosophers who dismissed him as a nobody or labeled him as a preacher of strange beliefs. But did Paul back down? No. This was a man who's already been run out of two towns, not to mention everything that came before Acts 17. This was a man who turned the world upside down to set it right. Zeal burned passionately within him. He seized every opportunity to share the untru- uh, unshakable truth of Jesus in his resurrection. And so today, we're going to face challenges. There are going to be people who don't like our message, don't like our convictions, don't like the way we live our life. But let me tell you something, my friends. Do not be afraid. We possess the truth of the gospel, a truth that can change lives, dispel misconceptions, and bring transformation. When you're engaging with friends who question your faith, perhaps they even scoff at it, don't shrink back or doubt yourself. Instead, let the fire of compassion and conviction rise within you. I want you to imagine the scene as the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God, infuses you with wisdom and courage and discernment. Empowered by the divine presence within you, you confidently engage with the world around you, undeterred by skepticism and misunderstandings. The light of Christ's truth radiates from your words and actions, cutting through the darkness of doubt and confusion." When we go out and we speak the truth, the Holy Spirit speaks through us. You may have a friend or a coworker who perceives Christianity as outdated and irrelevant, but instead of feeling discouraged, see this as an opportunity. Listen attentively, seek to understand their perspective, and with grace and wisdom, respond respond not by clamming up, not by being silent, not by being dismissive, but by stepping into the moment and gently sharing the depth of your faith. Show the genuine love that Christ showed you. Rise above fear. Be courageous ambassadors of the truth. Just as Paul boldly proclaimed the message of Jesus, we're called to passionately share our faith, not to win arguments. We're not raising up a generation of Christian debaters. We're after hearts. In the marketplace of ideas and and conversations, we need to be voices of compassion and truth. In our workplaces, our schools, our communities, we need to illuminate the way with our love, our kindness, and our unwavering conviction. We need to embrace the challenges as opportunities to reveal the beauty and power of our faith. We need to be guided by the Holy Spirit so that we can impact lives, transform communities, and bring glory to our Lord and Savior. So how do we do this? We continue on. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I can see that you are very religious in every way. As I was walking around, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What you worship without knowing, I am here to tell you. Okay, how do we engage with secular culture? First, we find common ground. Paul was incredibly wise in understanding when it came to engaging with people from different cultures. So Paul here stood before the Athenians and he made an important observation about the culture. He noticed their deep religiosity and strong desire to connect with the divine. And he discovered an altar that was dedicated to an unknown God. And this is a significant observation. So acknowledging their religious inclinations and their search for something greater, Paul established common ground with them around this unknown God. He uh, used this as a starting point for a meaningful conversation. So in our modern context, we can apply the same approach. When meeting someone from a different background or belief system, instead of immediately disagreeing or shutting down the conversation, we can take the time to understand their perspective. We can acknowledge their spiritual yearnings, their desire for purpose and meaning in life by finding this common ground. We can uh, consider a coworker who follows a different religion or holds skeptical views, and instead of disregarding their beliefs or avoiding the topic altogether, we can genuinely listen to them. By showing respect for the perspective, we're actually creating an environment where open dialogue can flourish. And by finding common ground, we can acknowledge their spiritual yearnings, meeting with them where they are. We can illuminate the truth. Paul skillfully revealed the identity of the unknown God, and he proclaimed the message of salvation, inviting the Athenians to experience a personal relationship with the one true God. There might be somebody in your life who's really into meditation and mindfulness. Instead of dismissing their practices and being like, you should pray. <laughs> Think of it as incomplete Christianity. This is a pre-believer. We can affirm their pursuit of inner peace and explain how our relationship with Jesus brings true peace and fulfillment. Just as Paul connected with the Athenians' search for the unknown God, we have the opportunity to connect with others seeking truth and meaning. We do this by meeting them where they're at and sharing the truth of compassion. There's a book, Dave's talked about it before, it's called Secular Creed, it's by Rebecca McLaughlin. And in that book, she prompts us to critically examine popular sec- secular phrases or slogans that we hear. For instance, she might encourage us to take a deeper look at the phrase, love is love. This is commonly used to support the LGBTQ rights. and McLaughlin doesn't want us to blindly accept or reject these phrases, but to interact with it. She wants us to engage with this idea, to understand the context, and see how they fit within our Christian beliefs. McLaughlin's approach in her book is about encouraging conversation. This isn't a debate, it's not a battle of slogans. It's an invitation for a conversation when we hear our friends say, Love is love. What are the positives of love is love? How does Jesus interact? With the promotion of acceptance what does acceptance really mean is acceptance the same as love as we begin to dialogue with our friends as we begin to challenge the secular creeds that we hear we're going to have avenues to that isn't love love is something greater we'll have avenues to communicate a higher belief by engaging Observing Paul's encounters with the Athenians uh, uh, provides insight into effectively engaging with others. Let's continue on. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So here in this passage, Paul confronts the prevalent idolatry in Athens, and he boldly proclaims that the God who made the world and everything in it is not confined to their temples, is not confined to little objects, is not dependent even on human worship. Unlike the idols made by human hands, God is actually the creator of all things and the sustainer of life itself. He holds sovereignty over all nations. He determines their times and dwelling places. And Paul's words here provide for the Athenians and for us a corrective view that challenges the prevailing mindset. He dismantles the notion of a a distant and disconnected God. He reminds the Athenians and us that God is actually intimately involved in our lives. And quoting their own poets, I love this about Paul, he quotes their own poets, he illustrates that we are indeed God's offspring, intricately connected to him. So the message that Paul proclaimed in Athens is profoundly relevant today. Just as the Athenians had their idols, we too face temptations to worship false gods. These modern idols can take the form of material possessions, wealth, success, popularity, our own intellect, and abilities. And the way that Paul confronts this is by going to the truth of who God is. One of the ways that we deal with our idols is by seeking out the truth. Idols will creep into your heart. Calvin says that the human heart is an idol factory. There are so many Christians today who have idols that are distracting them from the truth of God, and they're spending more time pursuing their idols than they're pursuing the truth of who God is in Scripture. Don't assume that all of your beliefs line up with Scripture. One of the things that I love about the Berean church that we didn't get to cover today, but I encourage you to to go back and read, is that the Bereans listened to Paul, and then they checked everything in Scripture to see if it was true. Challenge all of your beliefs to see if it lines up with the full testimony of Scripture, because there might be convictions that you hold that you think are Christian that aren't. And God wants to set you free from those idols, just as Paul is setting the Athenians free from their idols. When we earnestly seek the truth in God's word, when we engage in Christian community, when we fervently pray, we unleash a power that smashes the idols in our lives. In our world of constant distractions and misplaced priorities, God calls us to repentance and to respond with urgency. Idolatry, my friends, it has grave consequences in our life. They distort, they distort our perception of God. They hinder our vision of what God has for our life. Idolatry distorts our perception of ourselves. It leads us to seek validation and worth in external achievements, possessions, or the opinions of others. Pastor Timothy Keller, uh, he talks about idolatry by uh, bringing them all down to root idols. And his four root idols that we have to grasp with are these. Power, approval, comfort, and control. Ultimately, all our idols have to do with this. Power, the longing to achieve and influence. Approval, the yearning for affirmation and love from others. Comfort, the desire for ease and freedom from hardships and control, the pursuit to dictate our surrounding the future. Odds are one or more or all of these are idols that are prevalent in your own life that you need to confront by reminding yourself that all the power is God's. Our approval comes not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did. The comfort that we find in life is by clinging to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we need to let go of this idea that we have any kind of control because God himself is sovereign, as Paul preached to the Athenians. God is the creator. He's the sustainer. These idols are really dangerous for us. I came across this concept recently. It's called gold medal syndrome. Have any of you heard of gold medal syndrome? No? So it's this idea that our young athletes... They have their entire lives pursuing excellence, particularly Olympic athletes, right? Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, ridiculous hours of training their bodies, their minds, preparing for these Olympic Games. And then they go out and they compete. And some of them win medals, right? And you would think that somebody who wins a gold medal, like their life is set, they found fulfillment, they have achieved what they want. But some of these athletes are really young. I mean, all of the athletes are young, but some of them are like 15, 16, and they've earned one, two, three, four gold medals. And then what? Their whole life has been the pursuit of this gold medal. And then what? And what we see happening in these athletes' lives over and over and over again is their whole lives crumble when they lose the, um, the idol they had of that gold medal, when they lose the ability to compete when their body can no longer do ridiculous things that I I don't think a human can do, like backflips and, I don't know, other crazy things. Um, Their whole self-worth can fall apart when they're no longer winning gold medals. This is why we need to deal with idols, because we all have gold medal syndrome. It might not be on the Olympic competition. It could be at work. It could be in our home. Sometimes we idolize this idea that we're going to be the best mom, the best dad, the best friend. And when we fail or when that season of our life is over, we go into a crisis mode like these athletes. You get 18 years with your kids and then you launch them into the world. And while my kids are still young and I got a lot of years left, I know parenting continues beyond that. But it's different right? When they go off to college, when they go off and live on their own, it's different. And if your whole life was around their child in your home, when they're no longer in your home, your world can crumble. You need to find fulfillment not in earthly things, in earthly relationships. You need to find fulfillment in God. You need to crush the human idols and pursue God above all else. I want us to take a moment and do an activity. You'll see that there are post-it notes out on the chairs. I want us to make concrete some of the ideas that we've been talking about today. Paul goes into Athens, and he preaches against their idols, and he invites them to have a renewal of heart, to find the truth of Jesus Christ. And as you go out in the world, there are idols that you are dealing with. So I want us to make tangible. I want us to write out one of two things. You can either write out a commitment to destroy or confront an idol in your life this week. Or maybe this morning the Lord has encouraged you, challenged you to have a tough conversation with somebody. Maybe it's not a tough conversation. That's a bad way of putting it. Maybe the Lord has convicted you to have a passionate conversation about who God is. So then I invite you to write that person's name on the Post-it note. So you're either writing down an an idol that you're crushing or the name of a person that the Lord has laid on your heart to engage in a passionate conversation about the truth of Jesus with. And as you externalize these, I want to be able to pray for them, and I want other people to have the opportunity to pray for them. So on the back wall, on our chalkboard, scrabble board wall, um, we have, uh, it says, uh, deal with idols to spark revival. So I'm just going to invite you to put that post-it note underneath that phrase and just leave it there. And as, as we walk out, you can pray for some of the ones that you see and just let's pray for each other, that we can deal with the idols in our lives, but also that we can learn how to engage the idols in other people's lives to bring them to the truth of Jesus Christ. Because when we take a stand against idols, the way that Paul did, the way that Martin Luther did, we actually have the opportunity to usher in revival. Everywhere we see Paul go, we see him confront idols and stir up new believers in the faith, encouraging them in their life. I want us to be a people who do that, who confront the idols in our lives and engage the people in our lives with the truth of scripture. We have the opportunity to grow in faith, to deal with our idols, to spark revival. Um, Let me pray, and I just invite you to write that down as Lucas and the worship team comes on up and uh, leads worship. And then, so as you're writing it down, kind of during this next worship song, as you leave this morning, just go out through that back door and you can just post that over there. What Paul does isn't easy. It's not easy always to take a stand for our faith. It's not easy to be proactive in confronting the idols. But it's important. It's important for us to know the truth of God, to make sure that we're worshiping him in sound doctrine, to worship him in truth and in love. May we be people who worship and disciple and share the love of Jesus with truth. Lord, this morning, I just ask that you would do a work in all of our lives. Would you confront us of the idols that we have? And Lord, would you stir in us compassion? May we see the idols that other people are facing. And may we be distressed like Paul was. May we be people who are moved with compassion to share our faith winsomely, compassionately, and in truth. In your name I pray. Amen.